This evening's scripture comes from the first chapter of Jonah, verses 11 through 16. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good evening. I'm Pastor Brooks, lead pastor at Grace Community Church and attender here in the downtown campus. I don't know if many of you know this. Um, Stacy and I, my wife, this is where we choose to worship. So I'm not the primary teacher here. I'm just one of you guys. This is where Stacy and I worship with you, our family in Christ. So it's a privilege to bring you the word of God tonight as Jason is on vacation and Victoria is out and they don't trust me with announcements or cloth or name tags. So it's just, we're just going bare bones tonight. So there won't even be any announcements because Victoria and Jason are not here. So we're um, continuing in our study in the book of Jonah. And the reason we're going through the book of Jonah is, as Jason mentioned last night, we're in a season of mobilization. We have a desire for everyone in the body of Christ, those of you that consider yourself Christ followers, it's our desire that you are engaged in the Great Commission. For those of you that are not Christ followers, it's our desire that you would become Christ followers, that you would see the beauty of the gospel, who Jesus is and how much he loves you and what he's done for you and, and his calling on your life. And that calling is that we follow him. That calling is that we follow him and share that hope that we have with the people that we know, the people we love, and quite frankly, the people that we don't like. It's, it's what disciple-making is all about. But that's called the Great Commission. It's Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you to the very ends of the age. So that's the Great Commission. But if you look out over the West, particularly in the United States, and you look at what the church as a whole is doing, it might be better classified as the Great Omission. The Great Omission. Um, and so we recognize that uh, we have hearts and we need preparatory work. Now, the reason we're going through Jonah is not simply to look at, now, here's a horrible example, don't be like him. Well, that, that's true. That's true. But more importantly, in, in the book of Jonah, we get to know Jonah's God and we see his heart in contrast in contrast to Jonah's heart. And when we begin to understand the heart of God, it does something to our heart. It softens us. 
It changes us. And so last, uh, last week, Jason unpacked the introduction to the book of Jonah. And you know the story. Even if you haven't heard from last week, you probably are somewhat familiar with the whole VeggieTales story. Jonah is told to go to Nineveh. He's told to preach a specific message. He says, it's not going to happen. And he goes exactly the opposite direction to Tarshish. And God sends a great aquatic animal and he is swallowed and then he's vomited up and so forth and so on. So last week, Joe, or rather Jason uh, introduced it. Today we are going to look at the consequences of his rebellion. The consequences of his rebellion. Oops, let me back it up. And before we get there, before we get there, I want you to take out your smartphones if you have a smartphone. One way that you can participate in the preparation, the heart prep work, is, is, uh, is to text the word summer to the number 94253. Now, what you'll receive is a daily devotional, like the Advent series when we had a daily devotional, a daily prayer guide. So this would be an opportunity for you to stay plugged into Jonah, but also to be guiding, guiding your heart specifically in terms of how to pray for our community how to ask the Lord to search our own hearts, and so forth. So encourage you to do that. Got a little bit ahead of myself. So here's what we're going to cover today. Uh, if you didn't get that, I'll bring that slide up at the very end before you go. So those of you that haven't done that yet. Um, we're going to cover verses 4 through 16. 4 through 16. The reasons for the storm. Jonah is on his way in rebellion away from Nineveh, away from it says in verses 2 and 3, the presence of the Lord. So God in his mercy, God in his mercy sends a great storm to impede his progress. Now, we're going to look at the reason for the storm, the reason for the storm, and three things we're going to discover. First of all, what's wrong? What's wrong? Whose fault is it? Who's to blame? And the third thing that we're going to look at is what do we do about it? What's wrong, who's to blame, and what do we do about it? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will get right into the text, and we will let the Word of God uh, speak to our hearts. Father, we open up your Word, and we are asking, Spirit, that you would guide us in truth, that you would prepare our hearts, Father, for your mission. First of all, prepare our hearts to receive your grace. Prepare our hearts to see how merciful you are that we might respond in faith and that we might respond in obedience and that we might have the hope that is ours in Christ. Father, help me to preach and teach uh, this afternoon so that Christ would be exalted. I pray that my words would be tempered by you, guided by your spirit, and exalting to Christ. We pray that Jesus' name would be lifted up on high tonight. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, so who's, what's wrong? Who's to blame? What do we do? First of all, what's wrong? There's a storm. There's a storm. As you look at the text, but the Lord, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. It says in verse 5, the mariners, the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. 
So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Okay, so what's wrong? It's not a trick question. The ship is breaking apart. Now, oftentimes when these storms come, and in this case, this is a supernatural storm. God has hurled it against Jonah. Now, when the storms come into our lives, oftentimes we interpret difficult circumstances, even if it's from the Lord, we interpret these difficult circumstances as somehow God's wrath. Somehow it's God against us. And in one sense, God is against Jonah. James chapter 4, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, what is God doing here? What's his motive for opposing Jonah? It's his severe form of mercy. God in his love impedes Jonah's progress because Jonah is pursuing his own death. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 25 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 puts it this way. He says in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed against all mankind. Because although men know the truth, they suppress the truth because of unrighteousness. And later in that same chapter, it says that therefore God has given them over to their sin. And that's repeated three different times. And you see a downward spiral of debauchery and, and, and all sorts of vileness. And, and you can look around our culture. You can look around our culture metaphorically. We're all in the same boat, and the ship is taking on water, as it were. Jonah is in a literal ship. His literal ship is breaking apart because of his sin and rebellion. We corporately, collectively, as a human race, and in particular the United States of America, we're all in the same boat, and the culture seems to be disintegrating. It seems to be falling apart. It seems to be taking on water. So that's the problem. That's the problem. What's wrong? There's a storm. As a side note, as we look at the text here, what are the pagans doing, the sailors, the mariners? It's not a trick question. What's the text say? What are they doing? They're trying everything they can to save the ship. They're praying to their gods. They're doing everything physically that they can to save the ship. They're tossing everything overboard to lighten the load. Now, they're, as Jonah would see them, unclean, dirty pagans. Now, if you're offended by that, I'm just telling you how Jonah would have viewed these Gentiles. That's how he sees them. But the righteous follower of Yahweh, the prophet of God, what's he currently doing? He's taking a nap. He's taking a nap. I would submit to you that by and large, the world, the world, which is flailing desperately to save our culture in all sorts of different categories, looks at Christians by and large and thinks we're asleep. We don't seem to have the same concern maybe for the community, for the world that the sailors do. Jonah certainly doesn't. Now, if that's a fair critique of you, feel free to be convicted. If not, then it doesn't apply. But it certainly does apply to the body of Christ as a whole. So that's what's wrong. There's a storm. Now, the next category here, the next segment of the sermon is, well, who do we blame? Now, 
most of you, if you're a fairly mature Christian or even beginning to walk out your faith in Christ, you're troubled by the fact that I would even ask that question because it seems irresponsible like we have to point and figure out who's at fault. Like that's a bad thing. I, I submit to you that it doesn't matter if you think it's a bad thing. You do it anyway. We all do. And human beings have done it forever. That's just what we do. So we're going to take a look at how this progresses here. We're going to see two assumptions, two assumptions about human suffering and one principle. Two assumptions about human suffering and one principle. Assumption number one, and I'll go into detail on these in a second when I'm going to give you the headings. Assumption number one, someone's to blame whenever they're suffering. Wherever you see suffering, somebody's to blame. That's an assumption that everybody has. Non-believer, believer, doesn't matter. If they're suffering, somebody's at fault. Assumption number two, suffering's not normal. If it were number, if it were normal, no one would be looking to blame anybody. They would just say, oh, it just is. Oh, well, there's a storm. Oh, well, you got cancer. Oh, well, your marriage fell apart. That just is. But because there is suffering, we assume that there shouldn't be. When there's a storm, it seems like it shouldn't be. It should be sunny out. And the third is not an assumption, but it's a principle. And that third principle, rather the principle, is this. Personal sin always brings corporate consequences. There's no exception. Personal sin brings corporate consequences. So let's break this down. First of all, assumption number one. Assumption number one. Someone is always to blame. Let's look at the text. And they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? They give him the third degree here. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Okay, so the pagans. Here's how they view the world. They worship multiple deities, and in this time and on through the ages, and in fact, even in modern times, and if you go to uh, some continents, you go to Asia, and, and you're in, uh, in the nation of India where they have literally millions of gods, Hindu gods. In this context, they're worshiping various local regional gods or gods of, say, the sea or gods of the sky, gods of fertility, gods of commerce, gods of war. So there's a god for each separate segment of society or there's national deities that, quote-unquote, protect and defend each particular nation. So you have this group of pagans, and they're on, they're, on this, uh, they're on this ship, and there is a supernatural storm. Now, first of all, storms are not unusual. So it's highly doubtful that every time the wind blows and there's rain and thunder, that they are on their knees trying to figure out who sinned. Storms are just storms. But this is a supernatural storm. This is different. They perceive this to be something unusual. So they are figuring somebody on this ship has ticked off some deity somewhere. And we got to figure out who's to blame. They cast lots and the lots fall on Jonah. Now, we can look back and look at their paganism and look at their, their idolatry and we can say, oh, that's just ancient man. Christianity is so much more advanced not so much, just narrow down the deity. 
Instead of many deities, there's one. So take a look in John chapter 9, John chapter 9, and let's take a look at a Judeo-Christian understanding how Christians, and Jews in particular, view human suffering. They can't help it. It's just the way we are. So in John chapter 9, you have the disciples are with Jesus in Jerusalem. They're outside of the temple, and they come up outside the temple, and they see a blind man, and he's a beggar. And they, they check this guy out, and they ask Jesus a question. So if you have your Bible, what do they ask him? Who sinned? Is it him or his parents? What's the assumption? If there is human suffering, if there is a storm, it's because somebody did something wrong. How many of you have ever gotten a promotion, you did well in, in grad school, or some blessing befell you, and someone, maybe your parents, maybe a friend, maybe a fellow student, a coworker, said, you must be living right. How many of you have heard that or said it yourself? Okay, now what does that imply? What that implies is when you are obedient, the God blesses you. But what if you're not blessed? Ah, what'd you do? This is Job's three friends. What do they insist that Job did? Fess up, Job. No one suffers because he's righteous. You must have sinned. Now, from a Judeo-Christian standpoint, it's either suffering is usually people have the perception that it's due to the person who sinned or it's due to someone else close to them who sinned, collateral damage, or it's ultimately somebody's fault, even if you're totally innocent. What's Romans 5 say about sin and death? Through the disobedience of one man, sin entered the world. And through sin, death entered the world. So ultimately, even if we're completely innocent and we're not culpable of any wrongdoing and we suffer, the reason they're suffering, you can trace it back to the sin of one man. Somebody's to blame. So we can point the finger to Adam. Now, they cast lots, and the lots fall on Jonah. The lot falls on Jonah. So that's the pagan worldview. That's the Judeo-Christian worldview. So modern man may look at both Christianity and paganism and say, see, that's where you religious people, whether you're pagans or whether you're monotheistic, that's where you're, you're, just, you're just primitive. You're just so, I don't know, simple. It's embarrassing. Is modern man any different? I don't think so. I don't think so. Modern man assumes that someone is always at fault when there's a problem. Always. There's never an exception. There's never an exception. So let's take a look at the macro problems in our culture. We see the ship taking on water. What are the macro problems? You have economic problems. You have ecological problems. You have racial problems. You have socioeconomic problems. You have political problems. Now, I would, I don't know how many of you watch cable news. I don't, don't really recommend it, but let's just say for fun this week, do an experiment. So get on Fox News. Say, I don't like Fox. Get on CNN, ABC, doesn't matter. Pick one and watch the pundits. What are they doing every single night? They're casting lots to try to figure out who's at fault for each one of those issues. They are constantly putting, fixing blame on if, if you are a Democrat, 
It's the Republicans' fault that the economy's awful. If you are a Republican, it's the Democrats' fault that the economy is awful, etc. Fill in the blank. Choose an issue. Choose an issue. There's always someone that we need to pin the blame on. This is true now. It was true then. It is a human reality. Human reality. Assumption number one. Someone is always to blame when there is suffering. Now, let's move on here. I want to transition to an aside, but it's an important aside. I'm going to just make an assumption that most of you, most of you would at least refer to yourself as theists. You believe in a God. Most of you are probably monotheists. Most of you are probably followers of Christ. Now that might not be true of all of you. You might be visiting. You might be checking this out. You're considering Christianity. You're considering the person of Christ. But nonetheless, most of you are probably not atheists. But if you aren't, maybe you are, but if you aren't, you certainly know people who are. This is a predominant worldview in the West. The worldview is this. It's a materialistic worldview that says the universe is all there is. There is time, there is matter, there is chance, and that's it. There is no supernatural, there is no God. Make sense? That's the predominant worldview. That's the predominant worldview. So, if that's true, if that's true, and you have a materialistic worldview, or your friends or your professors and so forth has a materialistic worldview, then what's the basis for whether you determine whether or not something is normal? So you see the storm and you think, there's someone to blame for the storm. Why? Why? Here, here's where I'm going with this. You look at the pundits on TV. You look at the pundits in our culture. And they're all casting lots and they're trying to figure out who's to blame for all of society's problems. Well, what's, what's the problem? If there is no God, if there is no lawgiver, there is no law. If there is no law, there is no right. There is no wrong. There is no injustice. If there is no injustice, there is no evil. And suffering, it just, it just is. The universe, it produces what we get. It is what it is. If there is no God, there is no right and wrong. The sailors, if they were materialists, they would just look at the raging storm and it would say, well, natural phenomena. It just is. A low-pressure system is moving through. It just is. Nobody's at fault. They're just at the mercy of nature. They would look at Jonah and his apathy and they would say, his apathy just is. If Jonah is not a follower of Yahweh and there is no Yahweh and social Darwinism is true, then survival of the fittest would dictate it is absolute folly for a Jew to go to Nineveh. That doesn't preserve the species. It doesn't perpetuate his tribe. If anything, it will harm his tribe, which we'll see at the end of the book. And what about the Ninevites and the gross violence and injustice? Last week, Pastor Jason talked about how awful the Ninevites were. Define awful. If there is no God, why are they awful? 
Have you ever watched a, a documentary on Discover Channel or Animal Planet and you see a, a big cat take down a gazelle and snap its neck? Do you judge the big cat and say, you are, you are awful. I cannot believe how evil that animal is. No, it's amoral, not immoral. Why? Because it just is. The Ninevites are just practicing social Darwinism. They're just culling the herd. The strong cull out the weak. So the Ninevites just are. And your malignant diagnosis, if you have cancer, it just is. Your failed relationship, it just is. Now some of you are like, you know what? I don't even like you anymore. I'm not sure I liked you before, but I definitely don't like you now. You're a horrible person, and where you're going is just really ticking me off. I don't believe anything I'm saying. None of it. It's utter nonsense. Why? No one believes it. Even those who hold to a materialistic worldview, none of them believe that the universe just is. They are convinced that the universe ought to be a certain way. Humans ought to treat one another a certain way. Humans ought not to treat someone a certain way. That should arm you with a sense of credibility as you interact with a culture that rejects your faith. They have no basis. They have no basis for the desire for the world to be a certain way other than, well, I just want it to be that way. So that is an aside. It's not addressed in the text, but it is important. As we're fixing blame, I want you to understand that even those who don't believe in God fix blame. And they believe the world ought to be a certain way. Otherwise, they wouldn't be advocating for their views. Okay, let's move on. So two assumptions. Number one, the assumption there's someone always to blame. Number two, suffering isn't normal. So we got to figure out a way to deal with it. Now, here's a principle, though, not an assumption comes from verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? They're speaking to Jonah. What is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So here's the principle. Personal sin has corporate consequences. Personal sin has corporate consequences. Always. There's no exceptions. So Jonah's personal choice to disobey God has endangered the entire crew. These people are not culpable for his sin. They have sins of their own, but Jonah's sin is, is the consequences are, are affecting them. Potentially, they're put, he's putting their life in danger. And that's true for all sins. It's true for sins of commission, things that we do that we ought not to do. So, I hate talking about this, but it's just important that I do uh, because it's, it's so relevant and so ignored. Within the body of Christ, if statistics are correct, 60%, 67%, two-thirds of all the men in the church struggle with internet pornography on a regular basis to one degree or another. That doesn't mean a full-blown addiction, but they struggle. And if those same statistics are true, half of the pastors do. Now, the person that engaged, now this is less to, lesser to agree for, for women, but the person that's engaged in that kind, that kind of particular self-gratification, they make the assumption early on in their teens when they get their first smartphone, 
for me, when I was looking at my dad's magazines, you assume, I assumed, well, I'm only doing this to myself. Not true. There's a human being on the other end of the screen that's being exploited. And then you are preparing yourself for a life of torture when you finally do become yoked to another person. Your sin will impact your future spouse. Or it will put you in a condition where you are not fit to become a spouse. You say, man, what a downer. It is a downer. Have you ever stopped to consider that if that statistic is true, that maybe that's one of the reasons why there's no power in the church at all? The sin of Achan with Joshua is told to conquer the city of Ai, and they're just waylaid. It's a teeny tiny little city, and, and Joshua's crying out to the Lord, why did you bring this upon us? And God's like, what do you mean, why did I bring this upon you? There's sin in your camp. And so they narrowed it down, and Achan had taken some of the devoted things and buried them in his tent. His personal choice cost Israel 10,000 soldiers. Jonah's personal choice is threatening the lives of these sailors who are not culpable for his sin. Yes, it's depressing. And then that's the sins of commission. There's also sins of omission. I would, I would submit to you, I would ask the question, as you look out in our culture, do you see a salt and light deficit in the world that you live in? Would you say yes? The world is decaying. It's following a progression of Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 18 all the way through 32. It's going down toilet. It's decaying, it's dark, it's becoming darker. And the church, like Jonah, is asleep in the hall. There's a salt and light deficit. He's not actively sinning, he's asleep. But here's the thing, when the church fails to be the church and is not salt and light, the culture that it does not engage suffers because of its absence. I think Western civilization is an example of this. By the way, I'm not saying the church, when it was more engaged, was perfect. The church is guilty of incredible atrocities because it's filled with humans who commit injustices all the time. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a call to go back to the good old days. There aren't any good old days. The good days are to come when Jesus returns. Is the church asleep in the bottom of the ship as the world sinks? Okay, that was depressing. Let's move on. So what do we do? By the way, it gets worse. It gets worse. This is one of the worst sermons I've ever preached in my life. Not in terms of, con- not in terms of delivery and engagement. It's just, it's just depressing. But, but here's the deal. There's going to be 30 seconds of hope at the end. So there's that. <laughs> I'm kind of joking, but not really. This is not any fun. This chapter is awful. This chapter is awful. So what do we do? Then they said to him, what do we do? What shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. 
Okay, let's just stop for a minute and think about what Jonah just said. Let's, let's take a look at what he did not say. What didn't he say? <sighs> Here's the deal. You know my story. I told you the story when I bought my ticket. I'm running from God. He wants me to go to Nineveh. I don't want to go. So here's what we do. I'll confess my sin to the Lord. I'll confess it is sin. And then I'll obey and go to Nineveh. So row back to shore. Oh, no. No, no, no. Jonah would rather die than be obedient. Literally. That's what he's saying. Toss me overboard. I fully expect to die. That's the only way you're going to be saved. Because I sure as heck am not going to Nineveh. Kill me first. <laughs> this is the how not to follow Jesus sermon. No, Jonah is the, Jonah's the worst. And I'm a close second. I might be in front of him, but it's just bad. It's altogether bad. So what do we do? Throw me overboard. Then the sea will quiet down. For you know it's because of me that this great, great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, I love this. Who are the heroes in this story, aside from God? The dirty Gentiles. Look at this. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. The, to get back to dry land. They could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. They don't want to sacrifice him. They want everyone on the ship to live. They care about the Hebrew, but the Hebrew doesn't care about them. It's funny, I was praying earlier before I was preaching, Lord, help me not to yell. It was a vain prayer. I don't know why I even bothered. They, they care. They care. They're made in the image of God. They don't know. They don't have a covenant relationship with Yahweh. But they care. They can't help but care because they're human beings. The Ninevites are the same way. They're terribly violent. They're filled with injustice. But they're human beings created in the image of God. It doesn't mean they're good in nature, but there is good in them. Oh, man. So they obey, not Jonah, but they're like, we got to do something. So they called out to the Lord, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay it not on innocent blood for you, O Lord, you've done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. I love verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They're more afraid now that their lives aren't in danger than they were when their lives were in danger. The minute Jonah hits the water, the wind stops. They're freaked out. They've just encountered the God of Israel. And they make sacrifices. They make sacrifices. Now, here's why this is the worst sermon I've ever preached. The end. What the heck? This is awful. This, there's no hope here. There is absolutely no hope here. You know what Jonah is saying? The solution to your problem is you need to cancel me. We've, you found out who's guilty. Now throw me over. Cancel me. You know, you know the reference. 
whether you are religious or whether you are secular. So the religious have, a, have the commandments. You know, you've, you've driven past in the conservative neighborhoods and you see the, we believe in the Ten Commandments here. By the way, I'm not mocking those who believe in the Ten Commandments. I happen to be one of those people. I just don't have a sign that says Ten Commandments. So you have those people. And, and the religion, religion has, a, has an ethos that says, obey and live. Disobey and be cursed. Cancel. Condemnation. So here's the thing. But the Bible says, and your hearts will condemn you and, and testify to this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one lives up to the Ten Commandments. No one. So if we've displeased this God and the wages of sin is death and we've all sinned, well then we're canceled. And there's no amount of law keeping that can make up for our lawlessness. It, it's hopeless. You say, well, I'm not religious. I'm secular. Oh, but you have yard signs too. You have a secular creed. This house stands for, you've seen the signs, right? I'm not mocking you if you have those signs. I'm simply pointing out that you have a different set of creeds or a different set of commands. And what's the consequences of violating those commands as a culture? You're canceled. There's no redemption. There's no way back. There's no forgiven. You just, forgiveness, you just lose your tenure. You just lose your job. This, this is our culture. It's throw them overboard. The solution, find the guilty, toss them. Religion, find the guilty, kill them, toss them. Secular, find the guilty, toss them. Get them out of the camp. Forbid them, bar them, shun them. Unclean, unclean. There's no difference. And it's utterly hopeless. It's immoral for me to end the sermon right now. I can't do it. I can't end in Jonah. It's too depressing. So, well, I could go into chapter 2, but that's next week. So, we're going to fast forward 800 years into the future from this moment to a different ship, to a different set of sailors, to a different storm, and a different person asleep in the bow. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. He's at the Sea of Galilee. This is Jesus and his disciples. He's been preaching in a boat all day long. And when he's done, he says, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in a boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you think it is coincidence that this account sounds so similar to what we just read in Jonah? It is not coincidence. What you are reading in Jonah is a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. So there is some similarities and there are some dissimilarities. Let's keep reading. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
So the stories are strikingly similar, but they're different in many aspects. First of all, unlike Jonah, Jesus is not running from his heavenly father. He is running for his heavenly father. When he says, let us go to the other side of the lake, at the time he's speaking this, he is in Capernaum on the banks of Galilee on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. When he says, let us go to the other side, the other side is Gennerset. The other side is where the pagans live. And do you know who the first person they're going to encounter when they land on the other side? A demoniac who was rejected and despised by his own people, including the Jewish people. Jesus is running towards Nineveh. Not away. And unlike Jonah, Jesus is not the cause of this storm. Where is he going? Gennerset. Who is on the other side of the lake? A man who is possessed by multiple demons. Legion. Why is he going there? To set that man free. What's the origin of the storm? It is not God trying to hinder the Son of God. It is the enemy trying to hinder the advancement of the gospel. Please know in advance that if you choose to be salt and light in this world and you choose to take the gospel to the ends of the earth or across Clinton Street, the enemy will oppose you and there will be storms. It's just the way it is. So the storms are not to not sent from God, they're, they're sent to hinder the advancement of the kingdom. And unlike Jonah, Jesus does not hurl himself into the sea or ask the disciples to hurl him into the sea. He simply stands and speaks and he commands the winds and waves to shut up, be still. And there's death, deathly calm immediately, it's still. Where does he get the authority to tell the winds and the waves to be quiet? Well, the easier answer, easier answer is, well, because he's God. Yeah, but, but how does he stop evil? How does he, how does he combat evil? It's because in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. He must be crucified and rise again. Jesus is able to calm the storms. Jesus is able to save us from the depths because he joined our boat. You've been on a flight before and the, the stewardess or the steward stands there, he or she, and they take you through the, the safety instructions. And you don't listen like anybody else. You ignore them as, as they're going on and they put the little flotation divider around their neck and they pull the thing or they say the flotation divide is under your seat. So we're all on the same ship together and we're all fastened with millstone floating devices that are not particularly buoyant. Our sins will take us to the bottom. But Jesus enters our world and he enters our boat 
And he says, let me take that millstone for you. You're guilty, but I will not allow you to be canceled. I will take your stone and I will wear it as a garment. I will wear it as my wedding garment. And I will step over the edge and I will take the condemnation and the cancellation that you deserve. I will conquer sin and I will conquer death. And I will bring you into my covenant family and you will never be canceled and you will never be condemned. For when my father sees you, he will see me and my righteousness and you will forever be buoyant. You will never sink to the bottom, but you will be high and you will be lifted up. That's Jonah's God. He wants the Ninevites to experience that kind of reality. He wants those on the eastern side of Galilee to experience that kind of reality. He wants those here at the university to experience that gospel. He wants you to experience that gospel. And he gives us the privilege of bearing witness and testimony to his mercy and his love. I know that's technically not in the text, but it's too depressing to end at verse 16. It is in the text, though. You can't read Mark 4 and Jonah and not say, this seems like they're connected. They are. That's Jonah's God. So as we close, again, I told you I'd put this back up on the screen. Text summer to 94253. You're going to get a daily devotion. Every other day, a prayer guide that's going to focus on heart preparation and, and equipping us to be and make disciples, to focus on Jonah's God. Not Jonah's failure, but Jonah's God and how the gospel sets us free and prepares our hearts for mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Oh, I got to do what Jason does. As we go, please stand. By the way, I'm starting to copy Jason in North Liberty. They have to do this every once in a while too when I remember, which is about every other Sunday. So as you stand, we're called to go. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you have redeemed us. Lord, thank you that you have given your life, that you have taken our sin, that you have conquered sin, you have conquered death, and you have given us the gift of your righteousness, and you have given us the Holy Spirit, and the cost was of infinite value to you as your precious blood. The cost to us, it is a free gift of grace, and we receive it by faith. Lord, strengthen our faith that we might be obedient to you, not to earn your favor, but because we have it in the person of Jesus. Jesus, we pray that you would show us opportunities. We pray us that you would give us a love for the Ninevehs that you have us uh, going to, for our culture, for our community. Father, we pray for them. We pray for us. We are all in the same boat. Father, we pray that the gospel would set them free, set us free to be ambassadors for Christ. Lord, we love you, we worship you, 
and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.